This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by political consultant and communication strategist, Bill Burton. Bill was Deputy Press Secretary and Special Assistant to the President under Barack Obama from 2009 to 2011. He's now the founder and president of Bryson Gillette, a minority-owned political and strategic communications firm in Los Angeles and throughout California. Bill also holds the unique claim to fame for being the first White House employee to have an official Twitter account. Bill Burton, thanks for joining me today. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. All right. So, Bill, before we get into it, I just want to give a little bit more about your background. So you served as press secretary for Congressman Bill Luther from Minnesota and legendary senator from Iowa, Tom Harkin. You served as communications director for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee in 2006 and worked on the campaigns of Dick Gephardt, John Kerry, and obviously then Senator Barack Obama. You were also co-founder of the massive Democratic super PAC, Priorities USA. So a couple things I want to talk about. First is you know, we have prided ourselves on being an organization that sort of eschews traditional research, both polling and focus groups, quantitative and qualitative. But I know that that's something you keep an eye on. So as you're looking out from your perch out west, looking back east and looking at the country at large, are there any polling trends you're seeing that, you know, the folks that are listening you think would be interesting? You know, the thing that is surprising to me is that when you look at polls, particularly in some of these mayoral races, Coming out of the Donald Trump presidency, a very high testing point for voters right now is competence and the ability to actually get things done in government and not get caught up in all the partisanship and actually run things well. Because after you saw the complete fumbling of the ball on COVID and every major issue that came across President Trump's desk, I think people are hungry for government that actually works. And then besides that, you know, we're involved in some mayoral races across the country and crime and homelessness is creeping back up to be a really crucial issue for voters. In Los Angeles, for example, something like 93% of voters say that homelessness is the top issue or a very important issue for city leaders to deal with. I was in Los Angeles probably about a month ago, and I was driving past UCLA's campus in Westwood, and there's an entire tent city sort of along the western edge of campus right there near the Veterans Cemetery. But I also know that, you know, in big cities like this, in the urban core tend to be not only left of center, but pretty far left of center. And so how do you see candidates, especially Democratic candidates who are more likely to have an opportunity to win, to square what they see as a progressive belief that there's an equality for all, while understanding that mayors, maybe more than anybody else, have an actual impact on people's lives on a day to day basis? Well, right now there is a humanitarian crisis in places like LA and, you know, every major city in the country is facing it. And you can't get away from how crushingly sad it is that folks don't have housing and are living on the streets and are in these encampments. But the bottom line is homelessness is dangerous for everyone, right? It's dangerous for these communities. It's dangerous for families who are living in them, businesses that are trying to operate them. And if you are experiencing homelessness and you live in an encampment, you are in one of the 
tightest concentrations of crime, sexual abuse, everything that you can imagine. Drugs are being dealt out of these encampments. And, you know, it's not a crime to be homeless, but when you are in that kind of situation, you are surrounded by criminal elements. I mean, we had a press conference two days ago now. I'm working with a candidate who's running for mayor in Los Angeles. And he did the press conference at the Venice Boardwalk where homelessness is really running out of control. And there was a woman there who had a six inch knife and she pulled it out. And according to accounts said, I'm going to start killing people and eventually was arrested. The candidate was rushed away. But this is the whole point is that she had that knife to protect herself because those encampments are dangerous. And then, you know, experiencing mental illness or drug addiction, it turned into, you know, a pretty bad day for her and a lot of people who were rattled at that event. So I think that Democrats could be doing better to stop making excuses or allowances for encampments and instead create the kind of housing we need to get those folks into housing and out of these dangerous situations for everyone. I'm glad we're talking about this today because we don't often get to talk about things that actually are happening at the level where human beings actually live. But certainly I have, and you might too, have a number of friends who lived in the city of San Francisco for many years. Most of them have fled either for the East Bay, the South Bay, Marin County, or just left the state altogether because they lived in otherwise pretty nice, you know, upper middle class neighborhoods such as they exist in San Francisco. And they, you know, have to dodge needles and human beings and things human beings leave just to take their kids to school. And so how do you, as a consultant, convince your candidate, again, who is a Democrat probably, that, yes, you must have a humanitarian belief that these folks have as many rights to live their lives as anybody else, but that that situation cannot and should not encroach on the other several million people that might live there? Well, I think there's a divide right now between people who think it's compassionate to allow for people to live where they're living and the folks who think that we've got to build more housing faster and get those folks off the street and into housing, because that's the more compassionate thing to do, not just to live and let live, because that's not safe for anybody. So, you know, some of the stumbling blocks that we've come across in Los Angeles in particular is, you know, you try these housing options, right? And there's so much money in the system to deal with homelessness. I'm not saying that money is necessarily a problem, but a lot of it is caught up in bureaucracy. A lot of it is caught up in inefficiency. And they're building these individual units for folks to live in. And sometimes they cost as much as five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars to build. And it's just not a sustainable way to go about it when you've got 45, 50,000 homeless folks on the street and only more are coming when the eviction ban is lifted. Well, and also places like Los Angeles, you know, the weather's good 320 days a year. So you can, generally speaking, again, not that anyone would want to do this, but a lot of people do and are, a lot of people have to. You can live outdoors all year round. You can live in a tent and freezing to death at night is not likely to be an outcome. Now, that's probably a little bit different in Chicago or New York City or someplace like that where it gets below freezing or it gets blazingly hot and being exposed to the elements obviously will have a pretty nasty effect on you. But let me ask you about the housing because this is one of those, and you know in California, I lived there for 10 years, that housing has always been an issue. And so, you know, there's this struggle, as you mentioned, between how do we build more housing generally? Where do we build it? For whom are we building it? How do you ensure that it is affordable? You know, if you're on the developer end of the scale, you say, let us build as much as we can and the market will take care of it. Then you have the other people, you know, like in San Francisco, where they still have rent control that say, you know, we have to build this and, you know, you can only raise the rent 1% a year. So in 2021, America, how as a mayor, especially of a city the size of Los Angeles, do you contend with these incredibly powerful forces 
which are billion dollar developers plus well entrenched both bureaucracies, labor unions and everything else that for whom sometimes it looks like the fight is as much about just the fight than it is to get anything done. It's a tricky time and our politics have become completely uncorked since 2015 when Donald Trump started running for president. The political environment is sort of made for intransigence and just not getting stuff done. So I think you need leaders who are willing to be very focused and strong and fight on things that are important, right? Like with homelessness, you got to keep the main thing, the main thing. You got to do everything you can to get people into housing that is going to work for them so that you can bring down crime so that you can make, allow for businesses to thrive again. And so that you can use the parks in your city. Los Angeles doesn't have a ton of parks. And if all of those parks have become encampments, it's just not safe for anybody to use them at all. Well, and it's interesting too. I mean, I did a campaign in LA County probably seven years ago. And the one thing I found was, and a lot of that had to do with law enforcement, was that at the time, and admittedly, I think we've, a lot has changed even in less than a decade, a lot of folks were just being shipped to the men's central jail, you know, under the purview of the LA Sheriff's Department. The guards there aren't, you know, they're not trained for mental health, right? They're trained for incarceration. They're trained for law enforcement. And so, you know, a lot of folks who might get picked up, they don't receive either the care or the attention or the appropriate attention they need because they're being placed in something that is sort of fundamentally opposite of what it is got them there in the first place, right? If you're a habitual, you know, drug addict, you know, you might get picked up. Probably the last place you need to be is a jail that's probably akin, not jokingly, to a Turkish prison. Right. And, you know, concerns about criminalizing homelessness are real because, you know, if you do pick someone up and book them and put them in jail, you are creating another barrier to them getting onto a path that's going to make them productive members of the economy and of their community, right? Because it's just, it's harder to get hired after you've been in jail. So a big problem right now is that every night in Los Angeles, in some areas, as much as 30 to 40% of the shelter beds are vacant overnight. So it's not adequate to say that there isn't enough housing when there is a lot of housing that's not being used. The question is, well, how do you move folks from wanting to be on the streets to wanting to be in the shelters? You know, a big obstacle is that, you know, a lot of these shelters have pretty strict rules. You have to be in by five, you can't leave, and no drugs, no alcohol. And that's a non-starter for a lot of these folks who are suffering from addiction. The other part, too, and again, this is an issue for all of us around the country, but I found it to be particularly endemic in Los Angeles is you know, you talk about the fact that 93% of LA city voters believe that homelessness is an issue. In the race that I did, again, it was a county race, not a city race. In the June primary in 2014, I think we had a 12.5% turnout. Now, in a county of 11 million people, that meant that several hundred thousand decided, you know, for the rest of them. So how do you convince voters to actually appear when, you know, apathy is so baked into what's happened there for so long? People have such a low standard for what they expect from their elected officials, right? Like people actually anticipate that members of the council are going to be a little corrupt. And that's because a member of the council is arrested and put in jail, you know, every couple of years. I know LA's given Chicago a run for its money. <laughs> that's right. I think, you know, the mayoral election has moved from being in one of the odd years into being on the even year ballot. And I think that that's going to make a difference for people who turn out. And I think that people are going to be particularly motivated this time around because homelessness, I mean, you've looked at as many polls as I have. Have you ever seen an issue that's at like 93% important, 79% very important? I mean, it's really like off the charts. So I think that the person who wins this race is the person who 
convinces voters that they've got the most sensible plan on homelessness that's actually going to take it on and make a big impact on it. And in a city like L.A., and I'm sure like any big city, whether or not, again, it is a Chicago or a New York, Minneapolis or Portland or Seattle, how does a new mayor come in? And I assume there will be a new mayor. There's reports out that current L.A. mayor Eric Garcetti is being tapped to be ambassador to India. So he will leave. That will leave a, as I understand it from our conversations, a caretaker mayor in place. So how does a new mayor come in and not sort of be overwhelmed by the entrenched both interests and barriers to progress that seem to be the bugaboo of every L.A. mayor and maybe every big city mayor? It is really, really, really hard to make big change in, in Los Angeles. And Antonio Villaraigosa tried, right? He tried to make big changes on education and the school system. He tried to make a big impact on issues of climate and he had some successes, but it was very difficult to get through those intransigent elements of the bureaucracy that fight against you doing anything. But if you are elected with a mandate for great change, it does open the door for you to do some big things. You got to work with the council. You've got to have some allies there who can help pass some important initiatives. But a strong mayor who's got a clear vision and, you know, the will of the people could potentially do a lot of stuff. People are ready for it. And I think, you know, being mayor, as I said, you could be a small town. It could be a big town. Everybody, they want clean streets. They want the potholes fixed in L.A. At least I remember when I lived there, you know, every couple of weeks, another water main had blown and, you know, closed down some major artery in the city. And so, the, you know, the list of things that need to be done on a daily basis is endless, almost literally. And so you have to find a way to mix the day-to-day -day requirements of running a city and providing for the citizens thereof with that vision. And so, you know, let me take it a little bit out of municipal government, right? Municipal government can be a city of 20,000 people or 3 million people like L.A., but I do want to focus on this competence piece because I got a call from a Salt Lake Tribune reporter last week who was asking me about why the Utah legislature, where I live, very conservative state, obviously dominated by Republicans, was taking up issues like critical race theory, things that have not been an issue in Utah and frankly, not likely to be just given the demographics of the state. And what I said to him was that it's not about governing. It's about the performative aspect of this that other states have done it, so now they want to get in on it because they want to be in the slipstream with all these other nuts. You take like a Greg Abbott down in Texas, where, you know, the power grid failed twice already this year. The first time, because they're not attached to the Western grid or the Eastern grid in this country because they wanted to do massive deregulation. People died. They froze to death. Friends of mine, probably some friends of yours, didn't have power, didn't have water. Whereas some progressives, you know, in cities may be afraid to act because of the various forces acting on them. It seems like Republicans don't want to act at all. Governing is not part of the DNA anymore. So how do you convince voters to overlook their partisanship to actually get to like, should this person sit in the governor's mansion? Should this person sit in the mayor's office? Because so much of what we see even at the local level now becomes nationalized by these forces that you talked about were sort of building for a long time, it got unleashed five years ago. You have these forces on the right and on the left, and they're different, right? Like, I'm not saying that there's a both-sideism that is equivalent, because it's not. I think that on the left, you actually have people who are working in good faith to get some big things done. But, I mean, if you look at my Twitter feed right now, so in response to this event that happened where there was a knife, a woman was arrested, there are accounts of her saying, I'm going to start killing people. The blowback that I'm getting on my feed from all these hardcore activists who are saying that never happened. She didn't have a knife. 
this is all just like trumped up. I mean, there were hundreds of people there, like lots of witnesses, dozens of news reports about this. And it's just hard to have a conversation in politics right now if you can't have some shared reality of what is actually happening. And, you know, Donald Trump perfected that, saying that he had an alternative set of facts, an alternative reality, and that appeals to a certain set of people. We certainly have like some set of that on the left as well. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of things that contribute to this. It's some bad actors who are driving this, who are fanning the flames of these issues. And you've got a social media environment that has algorithms that are also fanning the flames of intransigence because outrage and anger are the things that get clicks and that get Facebook animated and your Instagram feed moving. And, you know, you're constantly making choices and listening to content that's put in front of you because executives at those social media companies have designed the system to work like that. Can I just, as an aside, Bill, and I might write something on this, but I'm on the email list for the Aspen Institute, which makes me as nerdy and bougie as I could possibly be, I guess. And so their Ideas Festival is later this month, and it's in Aspen, which is, you know, talk about bougie. But among the speakers are a guy named Chris Cox, who's the Facebook head of product, and another woman whose name I can't recall, but I'll find it, who is part of the jigsaw effort at Google, which is pushing back on extremism. And I find this fascinating because it appears that the folks who organize these events have no idea that the guy who's head of product knows full well that his products drive more sewage in American political life than just about anybody but Google and YouTube, who is now sending their person who's quote unquote against extremism to speak to a bunch of very smart people who probably are very wealthy, very well informed. I mean, you're giving them literally a mountaintop platform to talk about how they're good people. It's like, it's bullshit. You know, these companies, they're just built with an infrastructure that is focused on extracting every bit of attention out of you that they can so they can maximize their profit. And when you have that kind of incentive system where when you use Facebook, it's free, right? But you're using a product. And if you're using a product and you're not paying any money, you're the product, right? <laughs> right. We've all been commoditized in a way that is actually deeply damaging our ability to get anything done, to have conversations, even sit at Thanksgiving dinner with your family. It is in need of massive reform. And until we get that, we're just going to be continuing to march towards a pretty dystopic place. Well, and I'll tell you this. I mean, Bill, I know you've got kids. I think our kids might be of similar age or close enough. And I can tell you that when my kids are on the iPad and they're playing one of the games that's in this cloud, right? So, I mean, it's interactive and everything else. You know, you give it to them for half an hour. If you're being lazy, you give it to them for an hour. When you take it away from them, the reaction can be pretty ugly. And it's amazing to me, and I've seen it with my friends' kids who already have phones, whether or not they're nine years old or 13 years old or older, it becomes a part of them, literally a part of them physically. And when it's taken from them, thank God I've never had to deal with an addictive personality. But I have to assume this is pretty darn close that that psychological hold that is developed, it not only develops so quickly, but so strongly that when it's broken, the reaction from very young, very undeveloped minds and personalities turns negative in a big hurry. Yeah. I mean, your brain is producing serotonin and, you know, you crash in a way that you do with any other kind of addiction. And the thing that the social media companies are doing, it's sort of like the tobacco companies. Like when people first started making and selling cigarettes, 
people didn't know about cancer. They didn't understand nicotine was like such an addictive substance, but then they did. And the tobacco companies would, you know, sort of tinker with the nicotine to maximize the addiction, to get the flavor the exact right way. And then they knew it caused cancer and they still kept doing it. Social media companies, the exact same thing, right? Like Facebook was started so that Mark Zuckerberg and his friends could rate hot girls in their dorm. But then they saw that it was kind of catching on and then more and more people were doing it. And there's this cool thing to connect people. But then they knew that these algorithms were doing something to people's brains and were becoming addictive. And instead of like dialing it back, they ramped it up so that they could maximize what they could extract out of the attention economy and maximize their profits. And until we get in there and we regulate what they're allowed to do, I think it's a disaster for everybody, but particularly our kids whose brains are still developing. Well, Bill, as you know, as a former Republican, Teddy Roosevelt was one of my heroes. You know, no greater trust buster in the history of the U.S. than Teddy Roosevelt, right? Because Roosevelt understood something, which was the inherent danger of big, of too big. You know, and he had Standard Oil and railroads and everything else. And we saw, you know, Ma Bell and we've seen AT&T, however many times they've done that. But it seems like now it's like, oh, well, that's just how it is. You know, we'll dump millions of dollars in political contributions into Congress. We'll hire armies of lawyers. We'll create think tanks and policy organizations and yada, 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 basically to create this vision of what these companies do so that you can't possibly break them up because, well, that would be impossible. I mean, I don't know if you're telling me that Facebook and Instagram can't live apart. It seems to me they probably can, but Mark Zuckerberg doesn't want them to. You know, YouTube and Google could live separately, but whoever runs Google now doesn't want them to because it's all integrated and it all ultimately drives advertising dollars and drives eyeballs and drives engagement. And that's what they're looking for. The Biden administration and the Federal Trade Commission have taken a look at this. This is one of those weird issues, too, where you've got Democrats on one side worried about the power of driving conservative, lack of a better word, ugliness into the system. And you've got Republicans who say they're being silenced. So there's not a lot of love for social media or tech companies at the moment. So maybe something will get done, but, you know, I'm not going to hold my breath for it either. Right. All right. So you've had a lot of experience in national politics. You've served in the White House. You worked for President Obama. I assume that you had some interaction with then Vice President Biden while you were there. Anything you can give uh, the listeners a sense of? We don't get to talk to folks who actually know the president, the current president very well. Any sense you can give of what kind of person he's like? I mean, he seems to be a genuinely good guy, a family man the kind of guy who puts on his coat and tie every morning, goes down, gets his briefing, and goes to work. What's your sense of him having worked with him? He's very smart. He's very detail-oriented. He does his homework. He comes off as this kind of fun uncle, but in professional settings, you know that he's always read the memo. You know that he's always like talked to the people that he needed to talk to to understand issues. But on a personal level, he's just like such a joyful man. When you are in his gaze and he's really digging in on, you know, what's going on with your family or, you know, something that happened to you, you feel it. He has a way of giving attention that is different from almost anybody I've ever met. People would talk about Bill Clinton having the same ability. And it is like that, but, you know, in his own like Pennsylvania Scranton kind of way. So let me ask you this. When President Obama was in office, Mitch McConnell said something along the lines of, you know, my job is to make Barack Obama one term president. He obviously failed at that. He said something similar about President Biden. You know, my job is to derail Biden's agenda. You know, we spend a lot of time beating the hell out of Mitch McConnell, and I think he deserves every last flip of the switch we give him. 
But what's your sense, having experienced that, what does that do to a White House when they know that there's someone whose only goal when they get up in the morning is to make sure that you fail? For starters, I encourage folks to read Barack Obama's book, if you haven't yet. His account of his presidency, it's excellent, right? Like it definitely lays out from his perspective what went down, how things worked and how they didn't work. And I just finished it recently. And him talking about Mitch McConnell and the things that he tried to do on the Hill, In the beginning, we had to do everything we could to try to get Republicans on board, right? Like he ran as a guy who was going to do Washington different. He wasn't just going to talk to Democrats. He was going to be a president for Red America, Blue America, whether or not you voted for him. And then he got there and they're all bullshit, right? Like Susan Collins, Charles Grassley, Lisa Murkowski, like people who you would think you'd be able to work with. Grassley, you know, he's obviously more conservative than the other two that I just mentioned, but he was the person who we would need to make a deal with if we were going to have a bipartisan healthcare plan. And they were very disingenuous. They used stalling tactics to try to extract more concessions on the stimulus. You know, Susan Collins was like, I'm not going to vote for something that's over a trillion dollars and like fought and fought and fought to get it under a trillion dollars. And so it passed at 787 billion, I think. And then she didn't even vote for it. No Republicans voted for it. And then everybody who did vote for it got attacked by Karl Rove and his buddies for voting for a $4 trillion stimulus. So it was like, you couldn't win, right? So it's frustrating, but he was still able to get some big wins. And Joe Biden is still able to get some big wins. It's frustrating to see some of his agenda gummed up by, you know, even Democrats. But, you know, he will go down as one of the most consequential presidents in history. And we're just getting started here. So let me ask you that, because you mentioned obliquely other Democrats. So talk to me about a Joe Manchin. When I lived in Texas in the 90s, there were plenty of blue dog Democrats, lots of them, right? In fact, when George W. Bush was a first-term governor, his lieutenant governor was a guy named Bob Bullock, who was a legend in Texas politics and should be a legend everywhere. They got along famously, right? They didn't agree on a lot, but they managed to forge a very personal bond. You have Manchin, blue dog Democrat from maybe the reddest state in the country, And, you know, he wrote this op-ed, you know, last weekend where he came up with some pretty piss poor reasons for why he wasn't going to vote for the For the People Act, which basically protects voting rights across the country. If Chuck Schumer, majority leader of the Senate, had said, Joe, I need your vote on this, you know, would he have gotten it? Or is it sort of the end stage democracy where he is the indispensable man in Washington, D.C., and he just loves it. And so he's going to let things swing you know, one way or the other based on how he feels about something. I think that Joe Manchin firmly, truly, honestly believes that the Senate should be a deliberative place where people of both parties can work together to get things done. The thing that's frustrating is that I wish the right person could get to him and say, Joe, you could go down as one of the most consequential senators in the history of our country. Full stop. Like you have that power to do it. If you stopped worrying about re-election in 2024, you're not going to get re-elected, let's be clear, unless he switches parties. It's going to be very hard. And even if he switched parties, you know, you're not telling me that a Trump Republican isn't going to outdo him. But instead of trying to do both sides, like how about get caught trying to bring Republicans along, right? Instead of just complaining that Democratic leadership hasn't made this bipartisan, why don't you go talk to Republican senators and see what can get done? Because voting rights is actually a crucial issue for this country. And the way Republicans are changing laws all across the country is specifically to make it harder for African-Americans and Latinos to vote. That's just what they're doing, right? And so 
for Joe Manchin, why not be a savior and like actually help people get the right to vote as opposed to not worrying about it because maybe, you know, 93% of your electorate is white. You could be a national leader and you could go out as a person who like allowed for really big things to get done, but he's not doing that. Like nobody's going to be remembered for stopping HR1, right? He could be remembered for actually getting it going. But let me ask you this too, because, you know, I mean, I was on the phone with a very senior Republican, very smart Republican in Ohio last week. And I was just getting their opinion on the Senate race there, both among the Republicans, Tim Ryan and the Democratic side, who I think is a great candidate and I think could win. Their biggest complaint was that Joe Biden wasn't being bipartisan enough. And I'm sort of like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you know, as well as I do, like McConnell's never given him an infrastructure deal. He's never given him one. You know, you'd send Shelley Moore Capito, another West Virginian, to the White House all you want. She's going to go back to the Capitol and McConnell's going to say, ratchet it down again. Move the goalposts again. Move the goalposts again. But this is one who is by nature, this person I'm talking to is very anti-Trump. But the concept of Republicans can do what they want, but Democrats got to be bipartisan. You can't imagine how ingrained it is in the DNA, right? Because any giving of anything, it will be a sign of weakness. And that sign of weakness will eventually lead to an attack from Trump, an attack from the activists, an attack from the ecosystem, and ultimately a primary challenge or whatever ugliness, you know, the right will bestow upon you. There's a polling project. It's more like IDI's individual interviews where they track the opinion of insiders in Washington, Democrats and Republicans. And in the most recent, I can't remember off the top of my head who did this study, but their most recent study, they asked, who is the most influential voice in the Republican Party? And over 60% of the respondents said Tucker Carlson. Like he and Sean Hannity are poisoning the Republican electorate in a way where now over 60% of Republicans don't believe that the election was fair and was stolen from Donald Trump. And when you've got that kind of force on the right combined with the legislative evil that Mitch McConnell inflicts on the Senate, you know, it's hard to get Republicans. I would have thought that, you know, folks like Mitt Romney and Lamar Alexander, maybe anybody else who was retiring the cycle could actually do some work to get some things done. And I'm not saying just vote for everything that Joe Biden wants, like work with them and make it yours. Right. But Mitch McConnell is not having it. Whether or not it's Alexander or Blunt in Missouri or Portman and Toomey in Ohio and Pennsylvania, respectively, which my listeners have had to hear me rant and rave about them far too many times. I don't know what it is that they think is going to happen to them if they do the right thing. These are people, you know, at least Portman and Toomey, who I think like to consider themselves people who are conciliatory and want that old version of the Senate that Joe Manchin still believes exists. But then when the time comes, they don't stand up for the country. They don't stand up for anything. They just sit quietly on their hands. Um, but Bill, before we go on, I want to go back to something you said about Tucker Carlson and him being the most influential voice in the Republican Party. This is what I've said before, is you can't look at the right as just a political party. It is an ecosystem, and it is a self-supporting ecosystem. There's the media, Fox, OANN, Newsmax, Dan Bongino, all these people. Then there is the political aspects. There's Trump, there's McConnell, there's the RNC, the logistics of politics. Then there's the financiers, Mrs. Adelson, Steve Schwartzman from Blackstone, Charles Schwab, right? These people who give tens of millions of dollars a cycle. Then there are the heritage action, 
and all these other think tank groups who go out of their way to do these things. And then you've got Matt Schlapp and everybody else, the cynical elites. And so, and it all supports one another, right? It's a flywheel that swings one way or the other, depending on what it needs. But, you know, I was having a conversation with one of our guys yesterday. Would anybody consider Rachel Maddow or Joy Reid at MSNBC a leading voice within the Democratic Party? They can be a liberal commentator, but at the end of the day, is any Democrat worried about having to go on Rachel Maddow and get the treatment, as it were, and then that treatment coming from all the activists, too? And I don't think the answer is yes, but I'd like to get your opinion. Well, I think that Rachel is certainly one of the leading voices in the Democratic Party, the progressive movement overall. And, you know, Joy and Chris and Lawrence, you know, I think they all have significant roles as well, but it's nothing like the flywheel you're discussing on the on the right. It's a completely different thing. And it's in part, it's because it's, I mean, I'm a Democrat and so I obviously am biased, but their point of view is rational. You know, I had this idea that what if you had a website that took on Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, and observed Rachel and Chris every night and took the greatest successes, did fact checks on them, and, you know, kind of presented that as like, here's like an independent news source, take a look at what we're dealing with. But when you watch Tucker Carlson, nothing he says is based in fact, right? It's all purely emotional and fear-driven, same with Sean Hannity. And then when you watch Rachel and Chris, it's a completely different thing. It's news with a progressive bias, but it's not just made up shit. I've been watching Tucker Carlson every night for longer than I'd like to uh, admit. He would show clips of things that would be like, badly edited so that it looked completely ludicrous and see like see what socialist Kamala Harris has to say the thing that has changed in the last six months is now he's showing things when you watch the clip you're like okay that actually seems kind of reasonable and then he comes back and he's like look at that socialist Kamala Harris it's the Donald Trump who are you going to believe me or your lying eyes they understand that this is a game of small numbers that these things have to be just believable enough to get that six to eight percent of people who maybe left in 18 because they didn't like Trump, who maybe went to Biden in 20 because they didn't like Trump or because of the pandemic or whatever it is. They don't have to be completely honest. They don't have to be remotely honest. They just have to get enough people to come back across the line again through fear and through the idea that, you know, socialist Kamala Harris is going down to, you know, open the gates in Laredo to let them all in. And so truth is incidental in so much of this stuff. All right. Well, Bill, before we get out of here, where can our listeners find you online? And is there anything else specifically that you want to tell us about before we let you go? Uh, well, you can come to our website, brysongillette.com, um, or you can find me on Twitter at Bill Burton. This is a hell of a moment for this country. And if we're going to get any kind of change or any kind of like real progress, everybody's got to be involved. So I applaud your listeners for listening and for being in this conversation so that they can be in the fight. Well, and Bill, you know, we've known each other now a couple of years. It's been a couple of insane years. I just want to thank you for joining me and hope you'll come back here maybe before the end of the year and then certainly as we get into next year. But until then, everyone, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. And until next time, we'll see you soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our efforts to join our mailing list, 
and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Sentmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Thank you.